a few years after meaningless wandering, railed with substance abuse problems, creative problems within the band, unbeknownst to them, they were about to embark on a two-year journey that would elevate their profile to the largest they'd ever have. A new album with Dylan, a massive stadium tour that sold out, and much, much more. Was it something that they expected? Most certainly not. Was it something that they wanted? Besides Robbie, probably not. But it was a chance to play with their friend Bob Dylan again and catch some of that spark that they once had, or so they had hoped. As with the change in status, came with the change in geography. The band, so synonymous with upstate New York, uprooted their families and headed west for the sunny shores of Los Angeles, California. The band was about to be attacked from all angles, with new interest from everyone around them. David Geffen was still very much pursuing Bob Dylan. In typical fashion, Dylan was not one to trust or go along with a certain plan. Geffen and his label Asylum Records was offering him a ton of money in his own label imprint. Dylan was also refusing to resign a contract with his label CBS, and instead went to the Mexican desert to film Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, leaving everyone confused and up in the air for some time. It was often insinuated that Geffen tried to repeatedly get the band to sign with Asylum Records to get at Dylan. This has been disputed by Robbie Robertson, but Geffen knew of their close relationship and began whining and dining Robertson as early as cahoots. Geffen even made an effort to come to Woodstock, which he later explained as a dump. He tried to meet with Levon, according to Levon's book, and discussed a deal that would include Asylum buying out their contract, as well as doing an album with Dylan and a tour. Helm refused and Geffen, along with Joni Mitchell, jet set to Paris with Robertson and his wife to continue his recruit. Now, not long after Robertson decided to relocate his family to the West Coast, he took up a house in Malibu, California, and the rest of the band followed. Levon had suggested that moving to Los Angeles was the best next step. Most of the music industry had moved out there, away from New York, and the band needed to continue to innovate and survive in the music world. Levon had set Libby and their children up in a house on the beach in Malibu that was once owned by Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood. Levon himself rented a suite at the Miramar Hotel in Santa Monica. However, Levon didn't forsake Woodstock. He kept his home and traveled back and forth to continue to work on his barn. Richard relocated, selling his home in Woodstock and fully committing to Los Angeles. Garth kept his home in Woodstock and made the move. Without children, it was a little bit easier. And Rick had a more difficult time. He was often back and forth a lot, trying to figure out if moving his family westward was the right move. And overall, with moving to Los Angeles, there was still Albert Grossman. It was harder for some of the band to depart with Grossman, especially Robbie and Richard. As Levon suggested in his book, quote, he was important to us as a friend and as a businessman. It couldn't have happened without him. However, Levon didn't mince words either. He thought Grossman was too comfortable in Bearsville. He wasn't going to bat for the band as hard as he once had. And Levon also thought that Grossman's relationship with Robertson was too close. With California came a new system, no more manager, now the band employed lawyers and accountants to oversee their business, including the ability to exercise fiduciary responsibilities so the band wouldn't have to. In Los Angeles, Joni Mitchell was continuing to work on her next album. Having recorded Free Man in Paris about their joint trip with Geffen, Joni Mitchell asked Robertson to come and play on her new song, Raised on Robbery. The song thematically dealt with Canada, specifically Toronto, 
and Robertson was slightly apprehensive at first. He said, quote, I wasn't much of a session guy who could show up at the studio and go after the sweet hooks for your tune. However, he loved Mitchell's music and decided that he would try it out. The recording took place at AM Studios in Hollywood and was produced by Mitchell and Henry Louis, who had done work with Leonard Cohen, Neil Young, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Robertson heard the track and said on adding his guitar part, I felt an urge to toughen the track up with rhythmic attitude and then wail a bit. Take a listen here. Raised by Robbery is a fantastic and energetic tune that blends the angelics of Mitchell's voice with a little rock flavor and some raunchy horns. Robertson was also busy with Carly Simon and James Taylor. Richard Perry, who had worked with the band when recording on Ringo's album, called and asked if Robertson wanted to help out and play some guitar. He agreed and Perry assembled a team of Robertson on guitar, Dr. John on piano, Jim Keltner on the drums. And the goal was to record a cover of Inez and Charlie Fox's song, Mockingbird. As Robertson notes after a few takes of the song, it really wasn't working. Interestingly, even when you have a room full of amazing musicians, things just don't always work out. According to Robbie, he pulled Taylor and Perry aside and recommended slowing the song down. Everyone was going too fast and too hard on the attack. With Robertson's recommendation, the players along with Taylor and Simon did another take. It worked, and before long, they had a cut of the song everyone was happy with. Take a listen. interesting and unorthodox duet. The instrumentation is no doubt tight with an all-star list of reformers, and Robertson's solo is passable, typical like other work that he has done in the era. Now, with the entire band out west, the tour planning was in full swing. Remember, the band didn't have to leave their contract with Capitol Records to write, record, and tour with Dylan. If you remember back, they had drafted the original contract in which it stipulated that regardless of any agreements, the band could do anything they wanted with Dylan at any point. Geffen agreed to help arrange the tour for free, especially since he would get an album out of it. The band had found an off-season camp near Mulholland Highway, just north of Malibu, to call home as they rehearsed and planned for the tour. Dylan had to prepare a new set of songs, and the band had to rehearse. The camp was quiet and isolated, enough for distractions not to impede. Now, Bob hadn't toured in several years, and it had been eight years since he had done his full-fledged tour, so everybody was a little bit nervous. Recording for the album began on Friday, November 2nd at Village Recorder Studio A in Los Angeles. 
Now, the village was built by the Freemasons in the 1920s and remained their temple until the 60s, during which time Maharishi Mash Yogi used it for his meditation. Much of the architecture remained the same and was converted in the late 60s into a studio. Once a studio, it was the birthplace of classic records by Steely Dan and Frank Zappa. And the place was owned by Jordy Hormel, an eccentric type that Robertson called, quote, the most Howard Hughes type who turned out to be a terrific guy. Hormel was the hair of Hormel Food Products, a company famous for their mystery meat spam. He also happened to be a musician. The studio itself was run by Dick LaPalme, who worked with Chess Records in Chicago and worked with greats like Nat King Cole. The sessions were engineered by favorite Rob Fabroni and Dylan had pulled together enough material to record. Now, the sessions were super secret and the record was done over three days and according to Levon, they were booked under the code name Judge Magni and the Jury. The first song that begins the album is on a night like this. In Oliver Traeger's book, Keys to the Rain, Dylan suggests on a night like this is a typical song for him, saying, it comes off as sort of like a drunk man who's temporarily sober. Dylan is correct here. Thematically, it is slightly outside of his regular realm, uh, and so is it musically. It very much is in the vein of a pop song, but with Dylan, you can't have anything that is surface level and completely frivolous. On a night like this is a song about a drunken lover, yes, something the band is obviously a little bit more familiar with, but you don't just get the surface level tropes. The winter night, the campfire romance, is deepened by Dylan using literary imagery, referencing Jack Kerouac's On the Road with the line burn, burn, burn. And musically, the band helps take this number to the next level. The lively shuffle is led by a rowdy accordion played by Garth Hudson, and a very bluesy loose electric guitar from Robertson that swirls all around with Dylan's harmonica. It's quite impressive, especially compared to Dylan's other work on the instrument. This is paired with a rollicking rhythm section from Levon and Rick Danko. Take a listen. On a night like this I'm so glad you came around Hold on to me so tight And heat up some coffee ground We got much to talk about And much to reminisce It sure is right on a night like now, On A Night Like This opens the album and some have found the number not up to snuff for an opener. Clinton Hale in a Dylan biographer stated he found the song a disappointing start. Regardless, the song is fun and a nice departure from the over-serious Dylan numbers. Going into the next song is Going, Going, Gone. A sharp departure in terms of where it sits on the album. Right after a song like On a Night Like This, Going, Going, Gone takes us from a rather laid back mood into something a little bit more darker and pain filled. According to Robbie Robertson, the song was an extension of the 1967 song I'm Not There by Dylan and was recorded during the band and Dylan's basement tape period. This song doesn't even really beat around the bush. It's very direct and simple in its lyrical delivery and has some great verse lines like, Grandma said, boy, go and follow your heart and you'll be fine at the end of the line. All that's gold isn't meant to shine. Don't you and your one true love ever part. 
but equally disturbing verses that veer onto suicidal tendencies with things like, I've reached a place where the willow don't bend, there's not much more to be said, it's the top of the end. Now, there's been plenty of time dedicated to figuring out what message specifically Dylan was trying to dictate with this song. It's his sleight of hand lyrics that make it so interesting. It doesn't reveal anything specific, but has taken on various meanings over the years. In Michael Kowalski's book, Bob Dylan, What the Song Means, he suggests going, going, gone spells it out, acts as a prop so of what would actually happen to Dylan's marriage. It starts by telling us that he's reached the beginning of the end of something. There's nothing more to be said. He can't compromise anymore without losing anything. He's out. Now, musically, the song is greatly aided by the band's backing. It starts in the key of F and uses a fairly standard progression, except for one simple thing that truly impacts the song and finds perfect harmony with the lyrical content. When the verse ends, rather than going back to the F major, as suspected, it ends on a D minor, a sad note. Now, in rock music, it is irregular to end on a note different from the note that you start on with a verse or a chorus. It gives it that hanging on the edge vibe that in conjunction with the lyrical content is perfect. A minor note oftentimes feels sadder as well. Often noted as well as the mixture of Dylan's vocal and Robertson's lead guitar. Critic Tim Riley stated, the band's wind up pitch to going, going, gone is a wonder of pinpoint ensemble playing. Robertson makes his guitar entrance choke as if a noose had suddenly tightened around its neck. Take a listen. I've just reached a place Where the willow don't bend There's not much more to be said It's the top of the end I'm going states, the band brilliantly captures this sense of worry mixed with promise. Garth Hudson's organ searches for more steady purchase. If you take a listen hard enough and really let the song in, that both echoes Bob Dylan's final devastating omission of failure and brings to mind the hint of his long hoped for escape. Next is Tough Mama, which occupies the third slot on the album. Written in the same vein as On a Night Like This, the song is upbeat and rather matter-of-fact. It was recorded during the November 6th sessions with songs like Hazel. These two songs share the thematic strand of woman and mystery. Musically, Tony Atwood noticed that most of the song uses normal chords of pop, which is derivative from folk music. The repeat of Tough Mama at the end uses the flattened seventh, taking us into a different style of music, more R&B than folk pop. 
It makes sense. It was a common practice amongst Dylan and the band during this time, a little unique flair to spice up what, what would otherwise be a predictable pop rock song. The song also doesn't really use a chorus, rather it is eight verses that revolve around the same woman. Take a listen. Dylan spends time describing the woman as tough, a dark-haired beauty, a sweet goddess, and a silver angel. It's really kind of all over the place. The song really seems to veer into a goodbye type song in the fourth verse, when he says the line, I'm crestfallen, the world of illusion is at my door. Which is impacted so much more when he uses the line, I'd be grateful of this golden ring you would receive, insinuating he asked for her hand in marriage, which makes it even more devastating. The song then shifts as he completely is a wreck without this woman before he predictably sees another woman and wants to skip town and start a new life with her as seen in the lyric, sweet beauty, meet me at the border late tonight. Now more on the musicality, the band gives Dylan the grit he needs for the song, a little sexiness, a little anger. With Robertson's raunchy guitar, Garth's punchy organ and the rhythm section of Levon and Rick on drums and bass specifically does so much more to elevate. Take a listen. Recorded during the November 6th sessions, the next song, Hazel, is the typical type of song you'd find in the middle of an album. Nothing overly great, but a solid outing nonetheless. As Tony Atwood suggests in his notes, the song makes you think you're about to hear Hoagie Carmichael and Stuart Gorell's classic, Georgia On My Mind, but instead you hear Hazel. Take a listen to the similarities. <laughs> Now, if this song was sequenced right after Going Going Gone, it might have packed more of a poignant punch. So in that, that he is leaving a woman, and now in this tune, he is falling for another. However, that isn't the case, and there's a song between. Now, lyrically, the song is delicate, but there's also an omission of cheating from Dylan, or what seems to be cheating, and he may also be trying to justify that in his mind. For example, in the lyric, Hazel, dirty blonde hair, I wouldn't be ashamed to be seen with you anywhere, helps illustrate that point. And on one of the most damning, and one of the most damning parts of this that makes Hazel not in the league of other songs on the album is Dylan is hunting for the right vocal key on the bridge. The desperation really just doesn't work here and it kind of sounds like a mess, ruining an otherwise somewhat decent song. 
Musically, there really isn't anything to add. The band doesn't really do anything new, and there's nothing that is overtly standing out compared to other works. Overall, given the rush of the record and the desire for Dylan and the band to mainly get on the road and tour, this isn't really surprising, and not every song was given the workshopping and presented as a perfectly wrapped present. Next is Forever Young. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. And it was supposedly written by Bob Dylan while he was in Tucson, Arizona, and was thinking about his eldest son, Jesse. While Dylan was quite private during this time, during his time off from touring in 1966 through until the recording of Planet Waves, Dylan had had a number of children. He had become a father and focused heavily on his family. He later demoed the song in New York in 1973 before bringing it to the band and recording on Planet Waves. Apparently another reason for the writing of the tune was because of his reaction to Neil Young's song Heart of Gold, which had been said to have a more Dylan-like vibe to it and sound more like Dylan than anything he had written lately. He took that sort of as a challenge, and he later said, quote, The only time it bothered me that someone sounded like me was when I was living in Phoenix, Arizona. It was about 72, and the big song at the time was Heart of Gold. I used to hate it when it came on the radio. I always liked Neil Young, but it bothered me every time I listened to Heart of Gold. I think it was up at number one for a long time, and I'd say, shit, that's me. If it sounds like me, it should be me. Now the song is written in a lullaby style, and the opening line of the song is May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. And this is a reference to Old Testament's Book of Numbers, which has a similar line. And when recording with the band, they recorded two different versions of the tune that ended up on the album. A faster, more rock-oriented version, and a slower version more akin to the lullaby origins. Danko employs a descending bass line that perfectly fits with the wording of the song. The organ from Garth Hudson is introduced when Dylan says the last word in his line, May you build a ladder up to the stars, ascending to a twinkling sound, adding another layer. Take a listen. As with many things regarding Dylan, there is a rumor that a young woman visited the studio during the recordings of the song and complained that the slow arrangement led to her thinking that Dylan sounded like an old man, hence a faster, more rock-oriented version. Next up we have Dirge. According to Rob Fabroni, the recording engineer on Planet Waves, Dirge was written in the studio, unlike most of the other tunes on the record. Additionally, as mentioned before, the woman that complained to Dylan about Forever Young was directly referenced in the working title of the song when it was called Dirge of Martha. The word dirge means a lament for the dead, especially one forming part of a funeral rite. 
or by some to mean a song or a piece of music that is considered slow, miserable, or boring. Some believe it was included because they needed more songs for the album, hence the two versions of Forever Young, and the fact that Dirge is over five minutes long. Dylan had a tendency to add and remove songs over the course of recording, eventually putting this one in, even if it started off as a joke. The song, like the title suggests, is depressed and bleak. You get that within the first verse. Take a listen. suggests that there are similarities between this piece and the band's This Wheel's on Fire, which uses the same musical approach to come up with a completely different type of song. Unlike other songs on this album and Dylan material from the 70s, this song's doom and gloom isn't personal. Moreover, it's more in line with his 1960s protest songs that are quite revealing. For example, with his lyrics, So sing your praise of progress and of the doom machine. The naked truth is still taboo whenever it can be seen. Lady Lucky Who Shines On Me will tell you where I'm at. I hate myself for loving you, but I should get over that. And it is definitely more reminiscent of his earlier material. Atwood also suggests in his research that it is what ultimately lends creed to Martha being the reason why the song exists and doesn't fit the overall vibe of the record. It was made as a tongue-in-cheek attempt to write a quote old Dylan song. Like many other Dylan songs, it's been analyzed in various ways. Some suggest that the song is about drugs and addiction. Others suggest that it's actually quite personal about troubles at home with his wife, Sarah. And some even say that it was a commentary of his involvement with the protest movement, which seems most plausible. Now, musically, the song starts in a minor key before moving to a major key halfway through. This again is another similarity to the Danko Dylan tune, This Wheel's on Fire. It's not revolutionary, but a minor to major key change isn't overly common in popular music. The instrumentation is also quite interesting. The great acoustic guitar, the piano, it's restrained, it's simple, but it works well with Dylan's voice that is strong on this outing. It also shares similarities to the melody of This Wheel's on Fire. Overall, Dirge is often forgotten. It's never been played live, but on a personal note, remains a favorite of mine off this album. Critically, some people have said, quote, only Bob Dylan could write something like this and pull it off. And another reviewer suggests it's probably one of the meanest, darkest, coolest songs that Bob Dylan ever wrote. I think that's a compliment. Ultimately, Dylan could pull this off because at this point in his career, he was comfortable with his art and didn't overly care if people liked the song critically or if it fit with the overall album's continuity. Next, you have You Angel You, 
And it's not even a song that Dylan particularly likes. In a 1985 interview, he said it had dummy lyrics, not a glowing endorsement by any means. And it is true, the lyrics are quite ordinary, a straightforward pop style. However, with Dylan, his proclivity for being different, it gives these lyrics a little bit more than a regular pop rock song. It's also quite telling that the song wasn't liked by Dylan considering the sloppy production. The vocal delivery is poor and Dylan makes a lot of mistakes at the beginning of the song. I don't know why he didn't just redo it, rather he kept it in as is. This isn't the basement tapes, this is a legit album on a release. I'm not really sure why they didn't use another version. Regardless of that being baffling, it doesn't stop there. The musical arrangement is under-rehearsed. As Colin Halen suggests, it ultimately is a failure of the session, not really the players. The band just aren't messing with what Dylan is delivering. Typically, when it comes to the band's arrangements, they are thought of, well put together, and fit the vocal like a glove, all in the service of a song, the whole. Here, instead, you have an organ pushing runs, the lead guitar from Robbie adding really nothing, and the piano just driving forward aimlessly. It doesn't really work. However, the bass and drums work well enough, a great walking descending bass line from Danko that Dylan really likes, and it fits the lyrics. Take a listen. If anything else is to be said about the song, it is the lackluster finish with a fade out, and that pretty much sums it up. A fade out, a confusion, not really knowing what to do. That happens a few times on this album, and like previously said, when you rush something and put something together, there's bound to be something that just doesn't work. Following that is Never Say Goodbye. In Dylan forsakes the typical pop construction of the song yet again and tries something a little bit more unorthodox. The song begins in the key of D in the first verse before changing to the key of G. Now changing keys or modulating isn't overly rare, but doing so early in the song is a bit strange. Also adding to the fact that Dylan doesn't modulate a ton on other records, nor is it a conventional modulation. With Dylan changing keys, he now sings higher for the next two verses in G before modulating yet again, but it doesn't seem that the band goes with them, or at least not every member. What you end up with is Dylan reaching for notes that he can't really hit. Take a listen. According to multiple sources, there are seven takes of this song, which leaves confusion as to why he kept this version. Yet again, it sounds like a mistake. Nonetheless, thematically, the song has many readings. Duncan Bartlett of the BBC stated in the 2010s that the song was in relation to the first Metalworks sculpture exhibition put on, based on the lyric, because my dreams are made of iron and steel, which makes sense, I guess, but overall it doesn't really fit with the weird key changing, though given the chaotic nature in which Dylan was making a lot of choices on this album, it really isn't out of the question. Another reading of the tune concerns Dylan writing a love song, perhaps to his childhood in Duluth, Minnesota, or perhaps a woman he loves from Duluth, given the lyrical passages like, Twilight on the frozen lake, 
North Wind About to Break, on Footprints in the Snow, Silence Down Below. Nonetheless, the song is yet another conundrum, fine musically, if not a little chaotic, feeling rushed without an overall care given to it, in which we have come to get from Dylan and the band on this album. And wrapping up the entire album is Wedding Song, a purely acoustic number, which at this point was rare, most of his tracks have come with some form of instrumentation, starting with the electric era of Dylan. The song is raw and you can hear Dylan's hand slapping on the guitar, very reminiscent of his early albums. Dylan plays the third line of every verse differently, which is one way a unique take, but on the other hand, goes along with a lot of other odd choices on the album. It feels like a piece grasping for words in a lot of ways. On a musical note, from a collaborative standpoint of this album, it's strange that it ends with a solo piece from Bob, though he often contradicts what he says and does just for the fun of it, so maybe it's not really a surprise that he ended a collaborative album off with a solo number. It's also hard to hide that it's about Dylan's own marriage. Take a listen to the rawness of the first verse. Love you more than ever, more than time and more than love. I love you more than money and more than the stars above. I love you more than madness, more than dreams upon the sea. I love you more than life itself, you mean that much to me. Dylan often shrouds a lot of his lyrics in mystery and there's an obliqueness to it, and at least when he talks about his personal life. Rather, this song is the opposite and seems rather clear. But with the album recorded, Dylan had told the band he wanted to name it Ceremonies of the Horseman and painted a few covers alongside it. But before long, the name of the album was changed to Planet Waves and Robertson said upon the completion of the record, I don't worry about this album and how it stacks up against Bob's other records or what we had done together in the past. This was a pure reflection of where we were during the particular period, that's it. Sure, there was some pressure to get a record out in time for the tour, but to me it was an accurate document of those couple weeks at the end of 1973. And I think Robertson's sentiments are truly clear here. While you can nitpick this album to pieces and how it holds up with other Dylan or band material, ultimately it was just a fun session between old buddies. Gave me babies, one, two, three, what is more, you saved my life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, your love cuts like a knife. My thoughts of you don't ever rest, they kill me if I lie. But I'd sacrifice the world for you to watch my senses die. After a short Christmas break in Malibu, it was back to business as usual. The album was released on January 17th, 1974, pushed by two weeks after Dylan changed the name. It was his first proper album in just over three and a half years, and the media coverage was enormous. It was also his first release on Asylum Records. Planet Wave shipped gold, topping Billboard's album charts based on pre-orders, but by the end of 1974 it had sold a modest 600,000 copies after the initial orders were made. Oddly, the numbers didn't match with the enormous popularity of the tour that would go on to make over $92 million and pack stadiums. 
Critically, it was well received to a degree. For a review in The Village Voice stated, in a time when all the most prestigious music, even what passes for funk, is coated with silicone grease, Dylan is telling us to take the grease and jam it. Sure, he's domestic, but his version of love is anything but smug. This comes through in both the lyrics and the sound of the record itself. Blissful, sometimes, but sometimes it sounds like a stray cat's music. Scrawny, cocky, yowling up the stairs. And Ellen Willis of The New Yorker said, Planet Waves is unlike all other Dylan albums. It's openly personal. I think the subject of Planet Waves is what appears to be Dylan's aesthetic and practical dilemma. His immense emotional debt to Sarah. With the album out and the tour in full force planning, David Geffen had brought in Bill Graham and his partner Barry Imoff to produce the affair. The tickets went on sale for the tour in December of 1973 and the office had received 5 million letters requesting an average of 3 tickets apiece. And according to Levon, 4% of America's population wanted to see the shows, 40 concerts in 25 cities during January and February of 1974. In anticipation, they went to the historic Los Angeles Forum right after Christmas to run through the production over the course of a two-day rehearsal. There were different elements to work out, and the band's solo set was one, Dylan's solo set another, and playing together as a group. Overall, the idea was to run a two-and-a-half-hour show, and it was decided that Dylan would do his solo content first, the band next, and then a third set uniting the two groups at the end. The health of Dylan was also much improved compared to their tours in 66, he had stopped smoking and was doing exercise to get in shape for the road. And it was also imperative for the band to be taking a conscious look at their own health as it was about to be the biggest tour they'd ever undertaken. Would they be able to get out the other end in one piece, better off than they were before, coming out of a period in which they were more aimless than ever? episode on Planet Waves. Wow, what a ride. Um, it's been a long time coming. I've been working on this episode for a lot longer than I would have liked to. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff happening all the time, but one of the things, to be completely honest with you, is, I, you know, I enjoy Planet Waves for what it is, but I'm not overly huge into Bob Dylan, and when the passion isn't necessarily there for me, it's, it's harder to write and be inspired to write. But now that it is done, I'm hoping to get back on track and start enjoying going through the tour, uh, the eventual live album, and much, much more of the band. If you haven't already checked out some of the interviews that we've been doing in the last couple months, you can definitely do that. We've done some great uh, interview content, including an interview with Sandra Tuzzi, who wrote a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book on Levon Helm. Um, you know, for all the fans out there that are constantly complaining about Robbie really controlling the legacy, um, this is a book that you guys need to get behind and support. It is a great document. It's a great, well-researched piece explaining Levon's career from his childhood all the way up through the 90s. And it's, it's just a fantastic piece. And we'll be using it a lot when we get into that part of the podcast. Next, I would like to mention our Patreon which 
has been around for a little bit, but I am fully getting into the swing of things now. And if you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that you can support the show. There are different levels of donation amounts that you can donate to the show to help us make it. And luckily we have a few wonderful patrons so far. We have Anne and Kate, and thank you again to both of you for donating and pledging uh, a lot of money to the show. It definitely helps in more ways than one. There are great perks for coming to our Patreon. We can do Q and A's. You'll get access to the episodes earlier. I think I'm going to do a giveaway very soon here with uh, an 80th birthday celebration leave on t-shirt. Uh, other things, there's just gonna be a lot. The more patrons we get, the more opportunity you get to kind of talk about the things that you'd like and I can do that for you. Uh, otherwise, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Band Podcast. Uh, we're very active over there. We'd love to chat with people, so come over there. Also the Facebook group, The Band Podcast is blowing up recently and we have two wonderful admins there helping me make sure that we keep the content going over there and everything's fresh and everything's remaining cordial. Additionally, one of the last things I would like to do uh, here today is talk about voting. Now, I'm a Canadian, but I care deeply about my friends to the south and making sure people are registered to vote are important. Are you registered to vote? Because Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with music and the entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or to check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you can find all of the information you need to be ready for election day. I've actually worked with Headcount before and they are a wonderful organization. So lastly on this, make sure you go register to vote or find out more information at headcount.org. Anyway, I digress. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Band of History and we will see you next time. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, 
plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.